58. Number 58 will be the song of invitation or encouragement at the conclusion of our lesson. I mentioned in Bible class this morning that some time ago we looked at a, a lesson entitled, Shall We Dance? And of course, um, it deals with the biblical teaching on that subject. And some would ask, well, is there any biblical teaching on that subject? And the answer is clearly yes, and we looked at that. In fact, we looked at that subject at that time from two perspectives. One, from the testimony of the world, and second, the teaching of the Word. And I think that is a very good two-part approach to a study of that nature, that the world itself understands and appreciates the nature of, of things like the dance. And I mentioned in Bible class this morning, the, the uh, lyrics, part of the lyrics from the very popular song from years ago from, by ABBA, called Dancing Queen. A part of that lyric says, Dancing Queen. Uh, she is only 17, and she's there on the dance floor. Uh, she makes you uh, burn uh, in lust, is what the lyric uh, says. Uh, and then, she's a teaser, she turns you on, it says, leaves you burning, and then she's gone, looking out for another. Now, there's absolutely no doubt about what the message of that lyric is, that what she's doing on the dance floor is inciting lust among those men of the opposite sex who are watching, not necessarily participating, but, but even watching that can incite that. And there are other songs, uh, Lady, Let Me Take a Look at You Now, You're There on the Dance Floor Making Me Want You Somehow. That's another song entitled Lady from years ago. Well, on and on we could go with, with the testimony of the world about that subject, and we looked at that, but then we looked at the testimony or the teaching of the Word, and that the Word of God has something to say about lasciviousness, indecent bodily movements in Galatians chapter 5, which clearly refers to that. But our subject this morning is not, is not the dance, but it is, a, it is a subject of similar nature from the standpoint that it is, as I have said, tragically, I think in Bible class this morning, a, a subject that some think, well, the preacher has to do this every now and then, but uh, we'll just let him do it, but it really doesn't, uh, it really doesn't pertain uh, to the modern world, and that's the subject of modesty. But it is also a biblical topic, and today we're going to use the same approach in studying the subject of immodest apparel, and we do it because you're already seeing on television the ads that say, get your body in shape, summer is coming. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> Why shouldn't you want your body in shape, uh, be healthy at least, um, all times of the year? Well, the message is obvious. Summer's coming when the clothes start to, start to come off. But for the Christian, that must not be the case. It should not be the case. It cannot be the case if we're going to be true to the biblical standard. And that's the question we're interested in answering this morning. The question is simply this. Is there a biblical standard of modesty? Is there a biblical standard of modesty? Or does it fluctuate with the times and with cultural changes? Now, all of us here today have a standard of modesty that dictates 
to us that we should wear some clothing in public. I know that. I've observed that from the fact that you're all wearing clothes. So I know that you have a standard of modesty somehow, to some degree. You're wearing clothes. But the key is, do we all have the same standard of modesty? And is there a biblical standard? I believe there is. I believe we should have the same standard. I believe we can. I believe we can. If we'll examine the scriptures to find that standard. And in the second part of our lesson today, that's what we'll do. We'll look at the teaching of the Word. But as we did with the subject of dancing, we're going to first look at the testimony of the world on the subject of immodesty. Now, I have this from a bulletin by Dwayne Spivey from some time back. The article is entitled, Attention Visitors. Let me just share this with you. This is the testimony of the world now on this subject. It was Thursday night, and I sat alone in the guard room of our local jail. My Bible class had finished early, and I was waiting on the other groups to finish so we could leave together. Every person wishing to visit someone in the jail must pass through this room. As I waited, I glanced over the signs, which were posted to give visitors various warnings and cautions. One sign caught my attention because it was posted at least four different times in key locations. All of the other signs were posted only once. Obviously, this was a message they wanted to make sure all visitors understood. What message do you think a jail would want to make sure got across to its visitors? It wasn't about bringing in anything that could be used as a weapon. The sign read as follows, Attention Visitors. No person admitted unless properly dressed. One, shorts must be knee length. Two, no tank tops. Three, no short dresses. Four, no sundresses. Five, no shirts with obscene language or pictures. Six, no see-through clothing. Any person that cannot abide by these rules will be refused visitation. No exceptions. Now he goes on to ask, why would this be such an important notice to visitors? of a jail. Well, he says, obviously, they are aware that the way someone is dressed could have an adverse impact on the people they are charged with housing and controlling. They are aware of the problems that improper dress can create, and they want to avoid them with the people they're responsible for. And then he asks, shouldn't Christians be even more concerned when it comes to the way they dress? Our dress is to portray an image of godliness. We should be concerned with the problems our dress may cause in the minds of others. Should a jail be more concerned with modesty than a Christian? And then he quotes 1 Timothy 2.9, a passage we'll look at momentarily. Alan Webster, in the excellent booklet, Why I Quit Going to the Beach, Alan published uh, this in his very excellent tract series, cites a Dallas Morning News report in which 57% of men judged women's swimsuits to be, quote, just about right, end quote. However, 33% said they were too revealing. 59% of women thought swimsuits were too revealing, and only 33% judged them to be, quote, just about right, end quote. Allen then asked, could worldly people be more honest than some church members? 
And Brother Webster also quotes a sports fitness ad which said, and you've seen this ad or words to this effect already, it's that time of year again when it's hard to tell a birthday suit from a bathing suit. So we need to get our bodies in shape. Well, that's the world in which we live. But you can go all the way back to 1967, November 13th, and Mary Quant, the internationally known fashion designer, was quoted in Newsweek. Who was Mary Quant? The mother of the miniskirt. She was the mother of the miniskirt. She was quoted in that article in Newsweek, way back then, as saying the miniskirt was deliberately designed, quote, in order to seduce a man, end quote. Newsweek's Life and Leisure section carried an article on women's swimsuits that opened with these words. The skin game is in full swing on the stage, screen, and in the streets, and nowhere is it played with more splash than on a summer beach. Essentially, it's a spectator sport where fashion is frivolous, bathing suits are more celebrated for what is uncovered than clothes. That was June 2nd, 1969. But it's gotten a lot better since then, hasn't it? No. <laughs> no, indeed. Brethren and friends, it is not necessary for us to belabor this point to show that the world understands the effect that immodest apparel has on our society. There's absolutely no question about that. Terry Bradshaw has, a, has an ad now for, what is Nutrisystem, with a woman. And you, you can't really even watch the whole thing. You shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, you can watch him. He's fully clothed. I guess the women could watch it, but he's comparing. And at the end, she holds up the little top to a bikini. And he says, you win. And she says, don't we always? Don't we always? In other words, she was getting ready to hit the beaches in very little attire. So that's the testimony of the world. I don't think we could argue with the fact that the testimony of the world tells us what immodest apparel is designed to do. But I'm interested, more importantly, of course, in the teaching of the word. And we can go back and learn a very important principle on modesty going all the way back to, yes, you know where we're going, Adam and Eve. We can go all the way back and see that in Genesis 2.25, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. But then sin entered the picture, and Genesis 3, 6, and 7 tells us when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. But God wasn't satisfied with their efforts, because a few verses later, verse 21 of chapter 3, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. 
And that statement reveals to us that God provided the clothing he deemed appropriate for Adam and Eve. Fig leaves were not sufficient. Tunics of skin were. And my understanding of that word tunic in the passage means a garment basically from the shoulder to the knee, usually with sleeves. And notice the garment was the same for both Adam and Eve. So we do not need to think that men cannot be immodest because indeed they can. Also, the, the priestly garments that are mentioned in the Old Testament also provide for us, I believe, a very important principle of modesty. And I believe it's identical to the one we have just noticed concerning Adam and Eve. And that is that they were to go up, notice verse 26 of Exodus chapter 20 is where we are, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. The priests were not to go up by steps to the altar lest their nakedness be exposed on it. Well, we look over at Exodus 28 and at verse 42. And you shall make for them, we're still talking about the priests now, and you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. What's the point here? The Lord gave these instructions. And he gave these instructions to ensure the modesty of the priests as they ascended the altar. The trousers that were to be worn under their priestly robes were to extend from the waist to the thigh. One writer quotes uh, Maimonides, the respected commentator on Jewish law, as saying, these trousers reach from above the navel to the end of the thigh, that is, to the knees. But if one argues, well, these pants may have been shorter than the tunics God made for Adam and Eve, they may have been a little shorter. Well, think about it. Even if that is the case, you'd have to admit that the trousers that we're talking about here were the trousers that were under the outer, longer, priestly robes. It was underwear. It was underwear worn under the robes. And still, those are the specifications given in order to avoid exposing their nakedness as they ascended the altar, and it might be possible for those below to be able to see. Is God concerned about modesty? Was he concerned about it with Adam and Eve? Does he reinforce that concern for us with these priests? But what do you read in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5? What does Peter say about those who are Christians? He says, you also, you Christians, also as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do we not 
teach, and accurately so, that every Christian is a priest. Every child of God is a priest. We don't offer animal sacrifices as the Levitical priesthood did on behalf of the people, but what we do offer is what? Ourselves. We offer ourselves, our very bodies as living sacrifices. That was the admonition of Paul in Romans 12, where he said what? I beseech you therefore, brethren, beg you by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be what? Conformed to this world. Would that include conformed to this world in terms of immodest apparel? Well, of course it would. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we are to offer ourselves to God, if we are priests that offer ourselves to God, does it not follow logically that the same ethical conduct that God required of the Old Testament priest would certainly be required of every child of God who is a priest offering himself as a sacrifice to God? Therefore, there has to be a distinction between the way the priest in the New Testament, the Christian dresses, and those out in the world. It's not to say that everyone who's not a Christian is immodest in his or her apparel, not necessarily, but many times that's the case because they don't have that biblical standard. But we do. And if we're to present our bodies as sacrifices, should they not be presented in glory and purity rather than in the shame of nakedness? And then we come to 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, a passage I mentioned at the end of that article a few moments ago. Paul taught modesty in 1 Timothy 2, and verse 9. He wrote, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now the word adorn means to garnish or trim. It means to put something on. And the word modest in this verse, according to Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament words, means, quote, well arranged, as in the orderly arranged universe, decent and modest. You know what the word for universe is? Cosmos. The word here in 1 Timothy 2.9 is cosmios in the Greek, closely akin to cosmos. Well ordered, well arranged. But you can look in some English dictionaries and get some definitions on modesty like, quote, behaving according to a standard of what is proper, especially not displaying one's body. Webster, Thorndike Bonhart, decent or chaste, not calling attention to one's body. And back to that booklet I mentioned earlier, Why I Quit Going to the Beach, in which the definitions just mentioned are cited, Alan Webster also points out, Quote, we can be immodest then by wearing too much or too little. Wearing tuxedos to Sunday worship with diamonds and gold on each finger would be immodest even if the body was fully covered. Modest apparel is clothing that does not draw attention to a person. It also de-emphasizes, notice this, it also de-emphasizes the sexual aspects of the body and thereby does not arouse 
evil desires. And that is so important. And that is also so very biblical. Because let's go to the subject of evil desires from Scripture. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 28? But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Luke 17, 1 and 2 points out the mutual responsibility for the sin of lust. Then he said to his disciples, to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come. But notice this, but woe to him through whom they do come. Woe to whom? Whom? Woe to who? Who, it is, who is it that the woe is pronounced against? The one through whom the offense comes. He goes on. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. You know, it's possible that a few men might have immoral thoughts about a beautiful woman even when she is dressed properly. And if so, then certainly that's not her fault. That's all on him. Surely all spiritually minded men feel about immodestly dressed women the way Solomon expressed it in Proverbs 11:22, where he wrote, as a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. And ladies, you cease to be beautiful in the eyes of godly men when you dress immodestly. You know, the only bathing beauty I can read about in the Bible is Bathsheba and her exposure led to adultery, murder, lying, and all sorts of other consequences. One gospel preacher said, quote, My age is showing, for I was taught while still very young that it was not proper for opposite sexes to take baths together even if it was in a big tub. Now I've got a list of seven points here that I think are worthy of discussion. And I want to go through them quickly. One, if it's too short, too low, too tight, or too revealing, a godly woman shouldn't wear it. The exception would be for one's husband in the privacy of one's home, obviously. Two, if a Christian cannot participate in activities which require some degree of undress without seeing members of the opposite sex in a state of undress, or without being seen in a state of undress by members of the opposite sex, then a Christian should not participate in those activities. Three, a Christian should not have the attitude, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. In other words, a Christian should not refrain from immodest apparel when in the home community, only to find that same apparel acceptable when away from home. A Christian should not have the attitude, well, these people don't know me, I don't know them, I'll probably never see them again. But God sees all of us at all times. Four, immodesty does not involve 
just the ratio of material to flesh. Immodesty may be the attitude one has while wearing any kind of dress. It may be a slit here, an unbuttoned button there, a look, a gesture, a manner of carrying oneself. Whatever draws attention to the sexual nature and function of a person rather than to that person's spiritual nature and God-given femininity if a woman or God-given masculinity if a man. Whatever does that should be avoided. We've got to make sure that we have the right attitude. Five, one should not have the attitude, well, I grew up loving the water. Or I grew up loving dancing and I'm not going to give it up just because someone is going to see me or because I may see a good-looking guy or a good-looking girl, depending upon what sex you are. What I do is my business and what someone else does is his business. Well, everything a Christian does is the Lord's business. And a good rule to follow is, would I want to be found here wearing this doing this, etc., if the Lord should come again right now. Or if I should die, which would be the same difference, wouldn't it? Number six, a Christian should not argue. God gave us our bodies, and we should not be ashamed of them. Although this statement is true, God did give us our bodies, and we should not be ashamed of them. But that's a statement that's usually made as an argument to justify immodesty. We are not to be ashamed of our bodies unless we are naked or partially so before the wrong people, in front of the wrong people. God gave us our bodies to use in His service. And they are great joy and blessing to us, especially as they bring us into union with our mates. And number seven, one should not try to argue, quote, it is more immodest at times to be dressed differently from everyone else. It calls more attention to oneself. Well, if one must dress immodestly to be like those around one and to keep from calling attention to oneself, then one is not in the place where one should be. Get out of that place. Remember, in the last day, it's not culture that is going to judge you. It's Christ, not culture. The Greek philosopher Epictetus said, Know first who you are and then adorn yourself accordingly. I think that's a great statement. I think it has application to the Christian. Know first who you are and then adorn yourself accordingly. And if you know you're a Christian, then dress accordingly. We've set forth in this lesson what the Bible teaches, I believe, clearly teaches on modesty. It's not a popular subject with many people, but I believe it is one that must be preached because it is a part of the whole counsel of God. And certainly we live in a world where we are subjected to pressures to look like the world in so many ways, including how we dress.
God has always demanded that his people be willing to be different from the world. If what? If it required being different to be right. Don't just be different for the sake of being different, but if it requires being different from the world in order to be right with God, then I've got to be different from the world. And some may argue, well, modesty is relative. That less than a hundred years ago, it was considered immodest for a woman to show her ankles. So some would say, well, it's impossible to draw a line that separates modest and immodest dress. I don't believe that to be true at all. Based on the very principles we've studied right here today in this lesson. Now, if, if society standards, what if society standards become more rigid than, than the biblical standard? And so if I violate society standard because it's more rigid, then what am I going to look like? I'm going to look like someone who is worldly. Go back to Corinth and the head covering and the legislation given there. That was a custom. But Paul wrote for women not to violate that because otherwise they're hurting their Christian influence. The same would be true. If society standards become more rigid than Bible standards of modesty, we would need to comply in order to what? Protect our influence as Christians. However, when society standards become less rigid than Bible standards, we must stay with the Bible standards. Now, let me ask you, what do you think the chances are that society standards of modesty are going to become more rigid than this in your lifetime? And I don't care how old you are. I'm afraid to say I don't think it's very likely, is it? I'd like to think it would be, but it's not. We're going to have to stay with the Bible's standards, and we can draw the line based upon Bible teaching. Women and men must dress in a manner that cannot excite sexual desire in either sex. And we have enough intelligence to understand what kind of clothing has that effect. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. We have the intelligence to know what the Bible means when it says, back to 1 Timothy 2, 9, with propriety and moderation, the new King James, shamefacedness and sobriety, the King James. We have the intelligence to know what that means. You know, you also have the intelligence this morning to know what this means. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess Him to be the Christ and be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. You see, those are the things that are required in Scripture for anyone who is not yet a Christian who would become a child of God. One who believes that he is the Christ, John 8, 24, believe that I am he or die in your sins, Jesus said. But it doesn't stop there. Belief must be carried forward to some change of mind that leads to change of life. Repentance, repent or perish, Luke 13, 3, Jesus said. I've got to realize I'm not where I need to be and I'm determined I'm going to be there. That's repentance, a change of mind that leads me to change my life. 
and then to sweetly confess that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Matthew 10, 32, Whoever will confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father in heaven. And then Jesus also said, Those who believe, those who've repented, obviously, those who've confessed, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16, 16. And so a burial in baptism is required. Why? Because that's where the blood of Christ is applied to cleanse us from sin. To allow us to rise in newness of life, to walk in that newness of life, to present our bodies then as that living sacrifice, separate from the world, living in it but not living of it, not dressing like many of the world, not acting like many of the world, but being devoted to God in purity and holiness every day of my life until I die or until the Lord comes again. If you haven't done those things to become a Christian, we plead with you to do that. And if you have, but you have not walked according to truth, but walking according to the world again and need to come home to your first love in repentance and in confession of public sin, we plead with you to do that this very moment as we stand to sing for your encouragement.